There's a proverb that we learn from our Native American friends, and it's a great piece of wisdom, and it goes something like this. Don't ever, don't ever try to test the depth of a river with both feet. And it means don't jump into something feet first until, first of all, you know what you're doing. Don't rush into that business deal. Don't sign on the dotted line. Don't rush into that relationship or that commitment until, first of all, you've done your homework. Test the waters. Check things out. Know what's involved before you take the plunge. Jesus said the same thing in Luke chapter 14 when he told us, count the cost. And the word that he used for count literally means count with pebbles. He means go over those details with a fine-tooth comb. Don't ever be satisfied with just a, a rough estimate or a quick guess off the top of your head. That's not good enough. Check the fine print. Count the pebbles. Know exactly what you're getting into before you sign your name on that deal. Now, never have we needed that wisdom more than what we do today. Have you ever noticed the previews of some of the movies that have come out in the past few years and how they'll often say, inspired by a true event? And what that really means is, well, we're going to take a few liberties here and there. We're not always going to stick to the facts. We're going to embellish things as we see fit to make that story a little more entertaining. So that by the time you get to the end of that show, you're not sure how much of that story was fact and how much was fiction. Or you think back over the past 25 years and how skeptical our hearts have become because of all the lies that have been fed to us by our politicians. Do you remember some of these famous remarks? Read my lips, no new taxes. Or we have found weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Or I did not have a relationship with that woman. Well, it all depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. Or we've learned the hard way. You can't always trust what you read on the Internet because statistics can be manipulated and photographs, and photographs can be faked. I mean, who's to say but that was a computer-generated image? Or the magazines that we see in the stores. Most of the covers of those magazines have been airbrushed, so you're not seeing things as they actually are. Or even in a court of law, when people stand up and put their hand on the Bible and they are asked, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Even then, the jury has to be really cautious because they're not sure if that witness is giving the correct version of the facts because even in a courtroom, people will not hesitate to lie. So in a world where everybody's putting a spin on things, we're not sure who we can trust anymore. And in a world like this, we begin to wonder, is there really a way to know what's true and what isn't? Just a few years ago, there was a man who went into a drugstore in Yonkers, New York, and he handed a prescription to the pharmacist, and immediately the pharmacist became suspicious. And he told the man, well, why don't you come back later this afternoon? So after the man left the store, the pharmacist called the doctor's office to get the facts and found out, sure enough, the man had gone to see the doctor, but he was asking for a narcotic that the doctor refused to give to him. So on the way out of the doctor's office, that man stole a prescription pad. He went back home, he looked up the desired drug in a book, and he carefully transcribed the prescription. So what was it that caused the pharmacist to get so suspicious? It was the way that prescription was written. It was too legible to be written by a doctor. In a world where everybody's putting a spin in things and, and people do not hesitate to lie, trick, and deceive, in a world like this, we have to have ways to know where the truth is. And that search for the truth begins right here with this book. Because this book is not just any kind of book. This is God's Word. And everything He says is entirely true. Now today, I want you to, to see or to hear how the Apostle Peter explains this and emphasizes this. So take a look at this with me. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 16. Peter says, for we, and he uses the plural because he wants to know, I'm not just talking about myself, but all the other apostles, all these men that God used to help put this book together. As God was working in our lives, you need to understand, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. See, in Peter's day and time, the Greeks and Romans would tell all kinds of stories about their gods. 
And yet back then, everybody knew the stories were not true. They had no basis. In fact, they were just made up. I mean, nobody ever bothered to ask, hey, is there any historical evidence for this claim that Hercules is the illegitimate son of Zeus? Nobody ever bothered to ask that because everyone knew, hey, it's just a fable. It's a tall tale. It's a story that somebody invented just to entertain people. But the story itself has no basis in reality. Peter says, don't put this book in that category. He says, when we talk to you, when we made known to you about our experience with Jesus, we're talking about things that actually happened. Because we weren't the only ones there. We weren't the only ones who saw it. So you stop to think about all the details that the Bible gives, all the facts and figures that it provides that you can check out for yourself. I mean, have you ever noticed as you're working through this book how the Bible will mention all these kings and governors and countries and cities and mountains and rivers? So if somebody ever wanted to make an accusation against the Bible, somebody ever wanted to accuse the Bible of making a mistake, man, you've got all kinds of information to work with. For example, you think about Luke. He wrote two of the books. He wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And just in those two books, he mentions 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine different islands. And over the years, people have done the fact-checking. I mean, they took his material and they scrutinized it. And not once have they found a single error or a single mistake. You see, when Luke and all the other writers of the Bible, they, they laid out all these facts. They, they provided all these historical details so we can know, hey, I'm not making this stuff up. Or you think about today how you can travel over to the Holy Land and you can see with your own eyes what the Bible's talking about. You can wade through Hezekiah's tunnel that the Bible mentions there in 2 Kings chapter 20. You can swim in the pool of Siloam that the Bible talks about there in John chapter 9. Or you can walk the shores of the Sea of Galilee and still to this day see homes and synagogues from that ancient world so that you can have a better idea of the kind of place that Peter and his wife lived in. And you can have a better idea of the kind of place that Peter and his brother Andrew would go to when on the Sabbath they went to the synagogue to worship the Lord. Or you think about the work that has been done by archaeologists over the years and all the physical evidence they've dug up that helps us to make better sense of what we're reading here in Scripture. For example, for the longest time, people had trouble with that story that you read about back there in Genesis chapter 31. I mean, it just didn't seem to ring true. It didn't make sense. And people thought, ah, maybe they're just kind of making things up. You know, this story about Jacob and his family, how for 20 years he's been working with his father-in-law Laban. And man, through that 20 years, there was all kinds of friction. So finally, Jacob's had enough. He's going to take off. Middle of the night, they're moving out. And while they're moving out, one of Jacob's wives, Rachel, steals the family idols. Now, when Laban finds out that Jacob and his family's left, yeah, he's bothered. He's upset. They didn't even bother to talk to him. They just left. But when he discovers that the family idols are missing, that's when he goes berserk. Man, does he get, he gets so mad, he gathers all his men, and he goes chasing after Jacob and his clan. And I mean, he travels many, many miles in order to do this. It takes him three days before he finally catches up to him. And we're thinking, what's the fuss? What's the big deal? Why go to all this trouble just to get some statues back? I mean, all Laban had to do is just go a half mile down the road, just a half mile from his ranch, go down to the local market, and you find all these statues, all these idols that look just like the ones that have been taken. So what's the big deal here? To our culture, to our day, to our time, this story just doesn't add up. And then in 1925, a thousand clay tablets were found at a site there in Mesopotamia, not far from where Laban used to live. And from those clay tablets, we learned all kinds of information. But one of the things we learned is that back in that world, in that culture, when a person outside the family took possession of the family idols, that meant legally they could lay claim to the family's property. So as long as Jacob and Rachel had those statues in their hands, that meant legally they owned everything that belonged to Laban. Now we begin to understand why Laban's so worried and upset, why he's in such a hurry to try to get those idols back. And that's just one example of many that we could point to where because of the work of historians, because of the work of archaeologists, they have verified the details that we read here in this book. They're not making this up. 
And what all that means is this. Anytime you're reading through the Bible and you come across something that bothers you or troubles you or offends you, give this book the benefit of the doubt. Because it's proven itself to be true in so many other cases. When you come across something that upsets you, be patient. Begin to check things out because you might just discover that one of the reasons you're so upset is because you think the Bible's teaching something it really isn't teaching. For example, has it ever bothered you? It bothers me when you're reading through the Old Testament and you read about some of these spiritual heroes like Abraham and Jacob and King David and you watch how they treat women, especially how they engage in polygamy. You know, it's not just one woman staying in that home. There are multiple women that enter in and spend the night in that tent. In fact, it happens so often, it seems like that must have been a normal thing back in that day and time. And it was normal for a husband to have multiple wives, but it was not supposed to be normal for God's people. See, when the Bible records what Abraham and King David and so many other men of that day and time did, understand the Bible's not endorsing that behavior. In fact, it's doing the very opposite. God made his will clear. In Genesis chapter 2, God said, one man one woman. And then the Bible tells us in the book of Proverbs chapter 14, there's a way that seems right to man. It's not right in the eyes of God, but it seems right to man. And yet the proverb goes ahead to say, but the end thereof, the result is death, disaster, destruction. In other words, especially in the narrative portions of the Old Testament, many times instead of the Bible just coming out and just outright condemning the behavior, many times what it'll do, it'll just record it, report it, show it to us so we can see with our own eyes. Watch. Well, watch what happens when you choose to go your way instead of God's way. And now watch the results and tell me, who do you think is right here? So it is with this issue of polygamy. Every single time you read about it here in the Bible, even when a godly man is involved, anytime a man engages in polygamy, it wrecks havoc in the home. It creates all kinds of chaos. It stirs up all kinds of trouble and, and turmoil in that family. Every time a husband chooses to have multiple wives, it turns out to be an absolute disaster, socially, culturally, spiritually, and emotionally. So anytime you're reading through the Bible and you come across something that strikes you as odd, or it seems a little unpleasant, or it's upsetting, be patient. Begin to check things out, because maybe that section of Scripture is not teaching what you think it teaches. See, Peter's making clear to us, what we have here are not fables. These are facts. And there's a reason why all these facts were made known to us, so that we could meet and know God, so that we could have an encounter with Him. So, Peter's going to tell us about an encounter he had with the Lord, and how that encounter left a permanent mark upon his life. Notice what it says. Peter says, for we did not follow, as God was using us and working our lives to put this book together, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you. And here's some of the things they talked about in this book. One of the things he wants to make known to us about the second coming of Jesus. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's, Peter's saying that's just going to be an awesome day. How does he know that? Because he got a preview of what that day was going to be like. When one day, and you can read about this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one day Jesus took just Peter, James, and John, they went to the top of a mountain, and there suddenly his appearance was changed. Not he himself, his nature, but his appearance. He was transfigured. And suddenly with their physical eyes, they got a glimpse of his heavenly nature, his heavenly glory. Now they saw that he's more than just some amazing man. He is God in the flesh. That's what he's talking about here when at the end of verse 16 says, and we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And one day we're going to be eyewitnesses of his majesty when Jesus comes again. So Peter said that day on the top of the mountain when Jesus, we watched as he received honor and glory from God the Father. As the voice was born to him 
from the, from the cloud. He refers to God the Father as the majestic glory. It's God speaking from the cloud. And here's what he said to his son. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And Peter says, we. Hey, this is no vision, no dream. And it wasn't just me there. James and John, they heard it too. We ourselves heard this very voice coming from heaven because we were there with Jesus that day. We were there on that holy mountain. In other words, Peter's reminding us of the purpose of this book. The reason why, this isn't an end in itself, it's a bridge to a better place. The reason why all this was put together so we could meet and know God, so that we could enter into a life with Him. Which means, if, as you're reading through this book, if this, the reading of this book is not enhancing and enriching your life with God, then you're not reading this book in the right way. Verse 19, Peter says, let's understand what we have here with this book. We have something special. Because this book, what we read here, it's sure. The word sure, it means firm, reliable. You can trust it. You can stake your life on this and know it's not going to steer you in the wrong direction. So because we have something special here with this prophetic word, we need to pay attention to it. Because this, this book is like a lamp shining in a dark place. And it is this book that God's going to use to get us ready for that special day when the day dawns. He's talking about the second coming of Jesus. What the Bible talked about in the Old Testament is the day of the Lord, the day when God's going to make everything right. God uses this lamp to give us the light, to show us the right way to go, to get ready for that day. Because when that day dawns, it says, and the morning star, we're talking about Jesus. When Jesus comes again and the light that he provides, on that day everything becomes crystal clear. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess because everybody sees you are Lord of all. And as the morning star rises in our heart, the joy that rises in our heart in that day, when we get a chance to see Jesus face to face and know that we belong to him, what a great day that's going to be. Well, God uses this book to get us ready for that day. So Peter says, let's understand what kind of book we've got here. How was it put together? No, verse 20, no, first of all, that no word of Scripture, no prophecy of Scripture came from someone's own interpretation. It wasn't a group of guys getting together and say, hey, let's kind of collect our thoughts about God, kind of put everything in. You know, I figure God's like this. Well, what do you think? That's not how this happened. Verse 21. For no prophecy, not a word of scripture was ever produced by the initiative of man. It wasn't man that thought this all up. No, it came about God's the one that took initiative. Men spoke because they were moved by God. It was God taking the lead in their life. And they were carried along, guarded, protected by God's Holy Spirit so there wouldn't be one single mistake. In the year 1860, the Pony Express was created to help move the mail across the United States from St. Joseph, Missouri to Sacramento, California, distance about 2,000 miles. They had this elaborate system set up of men and horses so they could help people better communicate with each other. And the way the Pony Express worked was like this. They set up things in 10-mile segments because they figured that's about as far as a horse could gallop at full gallop. So a young man would mount the horse. He'd ride like crazy for 10 miles. He'd get to the next stop, dismount, get on the new horse, and continue the journey. And each rider would complete about seven or eight of these 10-mile segments before he'd finally hand the mail off to the next rider. And moving the mail that way meant you could get a letter all the way from Missouri to California in about 10 to 12 days, which in the year 1860, that was considered to be pretty fast. But something else about the Pony Express and how it was supposed to work, there were a few requirements. No rider could weigh over 125 pounds. The saddles on the horses were always small. And then in addition to carrying the mail, the rider himself was only allowed to bring along just a few, just a very few possessions. And yet in all this concern to keep everything light and simple, 
Here's what's fascinating to me. Every time a rider went out in the Pony Express, every time he was sent out on one of these missions, they were always sent out with a full-size copy of the Bible. Isn't that something? The Pony Express, the people of the Pony Express recognize, if you're going to take a journey like this, it is essential. It is absolutely essential that you have a copy of God's Word with you. Peter knew that. He was taught the same truth from the days when he was just a little boy. I mean, he's a Jewish man, which meant all his life, every Saturday on the Sabbath, he'd go to the synagogue to join together with his Jewish friends so that they could worship the Lord. And every time at that service, they'd always begin the service in the same way. All the men and women, all the boys and girls, they'd stand up and they begin to recite the words of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel. Begin to contemplate, begin to process, begin to absorb this profound truth. And here's the truth. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, and He is God alone. And we are to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That word here literally means to discern. God wants His people to be a discerning people, not naive, not gullible. God wants His people to be a people who are hungry for the truth. Not people who have their eyes shut and just accept anything that comes their way. No, God wants us to be a people who have our eyes wide open and we're constantly checking things out. We are people who refuse to let this mind become a garbage can where, hey, just throw anything in here that you like. No, we're to guard the mind. Whatever enters the mind comes by invitation only. And what do we invite? We invite the truth. So that brings you back to that question, how do we discern the truth? It all begins with this book. Whatever comes our way, whatever we're being told, whatever we're being shared, well, how does that line up with what God says, with what God reveals? I love the example that was set by Jesus. Mark chapter 5, where the Bible says, but Jesus paid no attention to what they said. Isn't that great? But Jesus paid no attention to what they said, meaning I don't get my directions from the crowd. I don't let the circumstances of my life dictate what I do. I take my cue from the Father. I follow the lead of my Father in heaven. Isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? Don't let your peers tell you what you need to do. Don't let this world press and squeeze you into their mold. No, determine to be the person that God wants you to be. And how do you know what God wants? Check the book. Because you see, through the pages of this book, if you'll let them, I mean, if you'll just genuinely open up your heart through the pages of this book, God will speak to you.